Back in the fur shed, this is the Trapping Today podcast. I'm Jeremiah Wood. I'm excited to be here, awfully humbled to be here. We'll talk about that in a minute. The podcast is brought to you by Cotts Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. Trap smarter, work harder, enjoy the success that follows. Check out Cotts Bros for all your trapping supply needs. They've got lures, baits, books, DVDs, traps, and a variety of other supplies. Thanks, Cots Bros, and the podcast is also brought to you by Fur Harvesters Auction Incorporated. Fur Harvesters is where the world comes to buy wild fur. A group of trappers who run a auction house out of North Bay, Ontario, Canada. They put together an excellent collection of fur every auction. They do several auctions, uh, two, three major auctions throughout the course of the fur selling season. They attract buyers from all over the world, and they really... You know, they, they know what it's like. These guys are trappers too, and they know what it's like to put together a collection of fur, you know, all the work that goes into it. And they work very hard to make sure that gets in front of as many people as possible. And even in tough fur markets, try to do their best to get the highest possible prices uh, for that fur. You can find more from them uh, places to ship your fur through fur harvesters and all kinds of other details auction dates past auction results at www.furharvesters.com now i said i was humbled and there are a couple of reasons for that one is the growth of the podcast is pretty awesome i've mentioned it before but we continue to see some pretty impressive growth more than than I really expected after doing this for, I don't know, 50, 60 episodes and not really getting a whole lot of traction. Now we're, you know, you know, we were probably, you know, two to three hundred downloads per week, uh, per episode. And now we are looking at, I just looked at last week's and we're already up to over 700 downloads and counting on last week's episode alone. And the back episodes are really cranking up, uh, close to nine nine hundred thousand downloads each. So so there's a lot more people coming on, and, and that is just really really great. It's awesome, and I I do appreciate that very much. People who are listening in and continue to listen in. Now the other thing that I the other reason that I'm humbled is, you know, b- basically I'm not a professional trapper. I'm not a professional anything to really, I mean, I, the my day job is about the only thing I'm actually professional in, and I do a bunch of other things on the side, but, I, the, you know, I just, I love trapping, I love talking trapping, and I've grown to really, really enjoy doing this podcast every week, and sharing information about trapping and interacting with you, and as a part of that, I get a lot of emails from people, more than I they ever did before the podcast, and the thing that really has impressed me so much is the quality of the people that are listening to the podcast. The if if somebody outside of the trapping world who never met a trapper in their life actually could see a lot of the the communications that I have with a lot of you guys podcast listeners, I think they would be pretty surprised that at how uh, professional, how articulate and and well spoken uh the modern day trapper is i mean it, it's been amazing to me to to interact with a lot of you guys i've just i'm just really impressed from people i've emailed back and forth with to people i've talked with on the phone i i really am impressed by you guys and and this is a really solid community of trappers from all over the country and and canada and i appreciate that so i don't know how else to express that but just to let you know that I am humbled to to be doing this and speaking of being impressed I'm impressed that you guys responded and and several people left Apple podcast reviews and ratings of the show and I just pulled up the op- Apple podcast channel for trapping today and I've got new reviews we've got 94 ratings and new reviews from urban trapper from 19738490 from ring 87 tn dad times 4 
Eastern PA Trapper, Wisconsin Trapper, and Russ Russ Dan. So thank you guys for leaving reviews. That goes a long way in helping other people find the podcast, and I sure do appreciate it. All right, I've got a bunch of emails and a bunch of things that are going on in my world as it relates to trapping today, and I'm not going to get into them tonight because we have a really good discussion with Kyle Kotz that I recorded earlier this week, and I want to play that for you, and I think it goes close to an hour. So we're going to save uh, this stuff for next week's episode. I think I'm going to spend an episode just talking about the different things that I've got going on as and just kind of rattling off thoughts. And then I will uh, discuss several emails that I've received recently and uh, answer a few questions from those emails. And then we are getting close to 100 episodes. We've got a few more to go. And we're going to do maybe do something special for number 100. I'm not sure exactly what that's going to be. It's going to be right in the middle of trapping season, so I probably won't have a lot of time to actually... Uh, do anything time-consuming special, but I know we are talking, you know, it may just be a regular episode, but Kyle and I have been talking about a pretty substantial giveaway from Cots Bros for the 100th episode celebration, so stay tuned for that. Um, I think you're going to be pretty excited about the thing that we're talking about is going to be pretty awesome. I wish I was a podcast listener that could get in on this. So with that, we'll get into tonight's episode uh, interview with Kyle. We just kind of talked a little while about a few different topics. One thing that I haven't got any questions about, but I have always been curious about is different people's thoughts on urine and the use of urine on the trap line. Because I've heard a lot of different things. I've seen people do things different ways. I do things a certain way that I I don't know whether it's right or wrong or how right or how wrong it is. And so I thought, who better to ask than someone who uh, sells urine and distributes uh, very large quantities of urine for trappers throughout the United States and for other trapping supply dealers. So we talk, Kyle Kotz and I talk about urine and urine storage, the, you know, what, what you can or maybe can't do with urine, how to use it, how he likes using it on his trap line, and, and a few things that other people do. We'll get into that. We also talked just shortly, really briefly, about fur prices and the fur market. A short answer is that really not much has changed recently, but, but we did a little quick chat on that. And then we talked about the new controversial trap, the Duke 550, uh, the basically the copy of the MB 550. So Kyle shared his thoughts about that, and we went back and forth a little bit on that as well. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, we will catch you on the next one. Kyle Cotts, good to have you back. Thanks for having me back. What's going on at Cotts Brothers Lures lately that we might be interested in? Oh, just it seems it seems like we. It seems like yesterday the snow was melting, and now here it is. We're starting the busy season, and I don't know where the time has gone exactly. And uh, you definitely tell orders are starting to ramp up, and dealers across the board in the industry seem to seem to be heavy into purchasing loads. So we're we're kind of starting to get swamped already. Yep, that's a good problem to have. Yeah. Yep. So you guys move a lot of urine, and it's something that I haven't. People don't talk about a lot, but I've been thinking about it more recently. I'm gonna do a little bit of coyote trapping this year, this season, and I I picked up some urine, some some fox urine, some coyote urine. But I really wanted to know, since you move a lot of it, you know a lot about urine. Like maybe we can get into a little bit of the 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 basics of using urine on the trap line. Okay. Well, to start with, the, I, I think a lot of trappers have misconceptions about urine. And I would say 99% of the urine on the market is good quality. It's clean. It's going to be totally effective on the trap line. Um, what you want to be aware of, I guess, is if you crack a bottle open and it, and it goes 
when you open it, it's okay. building gas. That that urine is going bad. Um, now, with that being that urine that builds gas is definitely bad. It's it's gone rotten. The reason for that could be a lot of things. Um, one of the things is if there's food, like when the urine was collected, if the uh, if the any any food got in the urine, um, that could cause it to go bad. Also, a lot of times animals get um, some blood in the urine, especially in the winter time when it's cold and water lines freeze up or water dishes, the water's frozen, and they're not getting enough hydration. That can lead to bladder stones or kidney stones, and then you start to get some blood in the urine, which will cause it to basically rot too um so, so this urine, there's most of this is essentially all of this is coming from animals uh that are either in ranches or in pens where the urine is collected correct yeah yeah all all the urine sold in the in in the world basically is from animals in cages um it there's really no other way to collect it unless you know a, a lot of trappers will collect bladder urine from animals they skin which bladder urine smells entirely different than than the urine we sell because the urine in the bladder has not actually been peed out yeah. um so it has a totally different smell and i would say in a lot of instances that actual pure bladder urine from the animals you trap is going to probably outproduce and hold a little bit more attraction than the urine you buy. Okay. Um, for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, I, I, there's, I could theorize on it for a whole podcast, I suppose, but I think a lot of it has to do with, with, with you know, when you skin an animal and you, you save that bladder urine, um, there's a lot of fat in the bladder. Um, there's buildup and stuff in there that just gives it a different smell that uh, in some instances is, is really effective. Okay. Um, so with that being said, um, going back to, you know, there's those two main reasons I can come up with for why urine would rot. It could turn like a greenish color and bloat. That urine is no good. Um, it happens. Everybody I know in the trapping supply business, um, everybody I know that's ever collected urine, at times, no matter how careful you are with filtering, there's going to be some urine that bloats and creates a problem. Um, so as a trapper though, if you get some of that, I'd go ahead and return it. Um, now I dealt with it before where people, why, you know, this urine smell, this coyote urine smells different than that coyote urine. I would say a lot of the coyote urine, fox urine, bobcat urine, uh, in the, in the trapping industry today comes from the same sources, whether, you know, regardless of which dealer you buy it from. Okay. And now the urine smell can can vary, and and the blunt example I give, um, coloration and smell, um, is as a human. Every time you pee, does it look the same? <laughs> <laughs> no, it changes based on your diet and and you know how hydrated you are. Um, uh, if you happen to be sick, um, there's a lot of issues or a lot not issues, but a lot of a lot of variables that go into it yeah. diet being the biggest the biggest one um you know trappers for, for like when i first started get when i first got into the trapping business in 1995 there was it was always meat fed urine meat fed urine yeah you hear that a lot still and, and and it's died down a little bit but you still hear it and the thing you have to keep in mind is a ranch fox, for example, um, which most of the fox urine comes from ranch fox in our industry. There is some from guys that do live market work that keep wild fox. But the need, the nutritional needs of a fox or a coyote, they cannot eat only meat and survive. Mm -hmm. If you feed a ranch fox just a straight, like say straight ground muskrats every day, every day, every day, they will die because they're not getting all the nutrition they need. Um, so that is one myth that I always kind of shake my head at, yeah. um, that, you know, you need meat-fed urine, meat-fed urine. I think you need a balanced diet and, um, so the animals are getting all the nutrients they need, and then the end result is you get a good quality urine. Yeah, you just and think about what those animals eat in the wild, right? They're eating berries yeah. in the summertime. They're not eating meat all the time. Yeah, yeah. 
Right, yeah. They, I mean, I think of a, a Midwestern Red Fox, which there's not many of them anymore. You know, they, they raid a lot of tomato gardens. They eat a ton of grasshoppers. Um, sure, they eat some mice. They eat some uh, some red meat. But I would say they eat um, a lot more eggs, a lot more frogs and snakes than they do actual red meat. So I never understood the wild meat-fed diet, like needing this meat-fed diet, because um, the rancher that is raising fox, sure, you can feed red meat, but there's also a lot of nutrients that go into that feed um, that the fox needs. Um, so it's that part of it has is, is always been kind of fascinating to me. Um, so going back to you know what what the urine should smell like again there's there's going to be some variances in feed naturally um again a lot of the urine all comes from the same source but not all of it does um so you know if you if you have one person person a collecting fox urine and they are feeding their fox a wet feed that is based with turkey and then the next guy is feeding a dry food that might be, let's say, lamb and rice, um, that the urine, I would say, is going to smell slightly different. But as far as using it on your trap line, there is no way I can believe that one of those two urines is going to be more effective than the other. Yeah, It's just, to me, it doesn't... I, I'm not going to believe that there's any justification for it being different. Just like in the wild, if you had a a post where the coyotes are marking it and one coyote has been eating uh, a dead cow for a week and the next coyote that comes by has been eating primarily um, eggs or grasshoppers or, or... corn or who knows what some non-red meat there's still when each of those coyotes marks that fence post the opposite coyote when it comes back is going to have the same reaction yeah. <laughs> the urine smells totally different yeah. so that's where I, I think I think one of the things Kellen and I get a big kick out of too is 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 you know to to in the grand scheme of things and I mean we sell a lot of urine but I'm gonna gonna say that urine really is only a very, very, very minute, less than one percent part of your success predator trapping. Um, you can you can give um, a person with a very, very, very low IQ the best quality lures and baits, and they're going to have zero success. You can take a trapper that really, really understands the animals, give him no lure, no urine, and they're going to have a ton of success trapping fox and coyotes because they understand location, they understand the animals. So uh, that's where I I sometimes get a get almost get frustrated with the with 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 the the um, the amount of of uh, um, importance placed on on, you know, what color is the urine or, or how come this gland lure is a little more liquid and this one's a little fit? Does it really matter? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, it, it, there's going to be variances, and that's why I've always come back to responding to that. Hey, is it is your urine the same color every time you pee? No, it's gonna it's gonna be there's gonna be some variance and and just because one one dealer sells a urine that's lighter in color and the next one sells one that's really really black. That does not mean one is watered down or one is inferior. It's just diet. And it's also the age of the urine. You know, one dealer might have urine that was collected two weeks ago, and the next dealer might have urine that was collected a year ago. So it changes color. It oxidizes. Again, I don't think it has any bearing on the trap line in effectiveness. I think you can use either one. Um, When I... Back in 2002, my first trip to New Mexico, I had some urine that was seven, seven or eight years old that I used. Had no problems with it. Yeah, I was going to ask um, you about urine storage and how long we should expect it to last. I mean, it's like an, it depends 
of weather, um, like where you're at, where it's the further northern regions, I would say it does last a little bit longer than, say, a trapper in Georgia or Texas or New Mexico, where it's really, really hot. Um, but ultimately, if it's if it's good, clean urine, I don't know that it really has a shelf life. And you know what I tell people too is if 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 you save it and you don't like the smell, mix some mix some fresher stuff in with it, and and you should be fine. Um, I kind of off on the subject of urine, but off that subject, uh, a couple of years ago there was a, we had a, a local uh, walk-in customer. Um, his name is Warren Burnett, and Warren, I met him in, on the Iowa Road Line. He was making a dirt hole set along a road, and uh, I just stopped and talked to him like in 1998. And we, <laughs> I, I didn't know Warren real well, but he came and he came and bought stuff from us. And he was just an interesting guy. Very, very few people probably ever heard of Warren, but he was as good of a trapper that you could ever say there was that he caught tremendous amount of fur had great stories uh trapped the mississippi river out of an airboat on the ice just fascinating guy and and i kind of i miss he he used to stop here probably two three times a year and he was somebody i always look forward to talking to and like just thinking about him now it's like yeah i, I miss his stories because he was yeah. just he he's kind of a lot one a, a kind of like my grandpa you, you lose that generation of of guys that can tell you stories what it was like in the late 40s sure. you know <laughs> um so anyway warren came one time and he said hey i wanted to give you this and he he had a bottle of urine that he had collected from his box like in 1974 <laughs> and he gave it to me in 2010 and it smelled great really? it was as black i mean it was really really dark black yeah but it had a, tr a great smell, and somewhere around the shop, that bottle of urine still floating around. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, it was that that story kind of proves the point of what I'm saying that that um, that 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 urine would have been oh, let's say 26 years old or so when he gave it to me. Yeah, and it um, hadn't changed a whole lot from the time he. It, it. No, it, it it had a little bit of a like a like the burning smell to it like you could tell it was old yeah but i would have no problem taking that urine and using it tomorrow um it was it was good stuff and that was you know that was a credit to warren when he collected it he he knew what he was doing he he filtered it or or just took care of his collection setup so that it was really clean um so i always come back to that uh you know if i I would say a lot of trappers, if I gave them that bottle of urine, they would never, ever guess it was 26 years old. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they would probably say, oh, that, that smells real good. Yeah. It's like, yeah, and it's super, super old. <laughs> <laughs> now, some people will probably ask about freezing and thawing. Does that have any impact on the quality of urine? Mm, it shouldn't. Um, that, that question makes me think of another thing, too, and, and people do at times ask, you know, how come this urine freezes quicker than that urine? Again, I think that goes back some to to the diet. Um, but what I always tell that? people, yeah, the, the way their body is breaking down, yeah, urine. Naturally, when your body breaks things down and you pee, when the fox pees, a part of that is water. So depending on what they're eating, how much they're drinking it changes the percentage of water in it, which would then change the, the freezing point. Um, it's probably a good idea if, you know, if you're trapping in a harsh winter to mix in a little bit of glycerin with the urine, just because it does help keep it, keep it antifreeze. And if you mix eight to 12 ounces of glycerin in a gallon of urine, it's not going to change the, the smell or the effectiveness. It's just going to keep it, um, keep it liquid longer in your bottle. Okay, and, it, and that mixes pretty easily. You just shake it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. huh. Yep, yep. Just shake it up, and and it's it's mixed basically. I've also heard um, uh, a guy told me long long time ago that he liked to put salt in the urine, and that's something you can do too. Um, is mix a little bit of salt, and sometimes um, salt. One thing about salt is if the urine is super fresh. Um, if you put salt in there and it isn't the cleanest, sometimes the salt will help to actually act as a preservative in the urine. Um, mm -hmm. The one thing, though, about salt is that also if you get a really, really salty urine, 
um, you or I probably couldn't tell the difference in the smell, but it will attract deer more okay. for whatever reason. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then you get a lot of traps dug up and stuff, but um, that would be the only downfall of it, whereas glycerin is not going to change the smell any. So, so let's say we've got we've got our urine. We know how to uh, we know what quality urine is. We we know how to store it and everything, and take care of it in freezing weather. We're going to use it on the line. How do you and Kellen use urine in your fox and coyote trapping? Well, that's an interesting question because everybody does things a lot different, and there's people that have caught way more predators than I I have, and they do it just the opposite. Um, like when Kellen and I would trap together, uh, like in Mississippi or New Mexico, he would generally make flat sets with glandular and urine, and I would make dirt holes with baits and curiosity-type lures. And that was kind of the system we did it. When I trap by myself, I rarely ever use urine in a dirt hole um, because in the in the wild, if a, if a coyote buries a, a chunk of meat, it pulled off a deer carcass, if it buries it, it doesn't then pee. When it digs it up and yep. hauls the meat away, a lot of times then they'll pee in the hole that the head it buried in. So my take was, well, I don't want to make a dirt hole and have the coyote think, well, it's gone. Uh, the stuff's gone. It's gone. You know. But then again, you got to look back to ultimately all the smells we're putting at sets. You know this territorial response and this rubbing and all we're playing on their curiosity we're not fooling them if we dig a two inch dirt hole in the ground there's no coyote in the world that thinks oh another coyote dug a hole that looks like that <laughs> yeah. they, you know, there's no the coyotes physically enable of digging a hole that looks like that so you know does it really matter if you put urine in a dirt hole mm, probably not um there's a lot of guys, like I say, there were the theory of you know to to cover up human smell, and I was just right. laughing when you when you talk to to JP Wilson about this whole human thing. You know, there was a, in that era where in order to catch a fox, you had to wear rubber boots, you had to dip yourself full body in wax, and <laughs> and, and and glide hover above your set so you didn't ever touch the dirt. And in that era of this paranoia about scent control. There was a lot of, I, I think there was a lot of trappers that advocated, you know, spraying urine all over the set as like a fear. S- suspicion reducer, remover, eliminator. Right? Yeah, it's suspicion remover. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. And so I don't, I don't think we need hurt. to do that. It, it probably doesn't hurt. But then there's also that part of me that like when I have a, a fox, when a fox or coyote approaches the set, I want their nose pinpointed to where the smell is. I don't want the smell sprayed over an area that's two or three feet because they're going to be moving their head around and trying to like figure it out and their feet are moving so much more that it, I, I want the smell pinpointed. Um, so with urine, for example, I want to, if I was going to use it at a dirt hole, I want to squirt it right in the bottom of the hole so that their nose can go and get stuck right in the hole and I can take a pretty good guess of where their foot's going to be so that they'll step on my trap. Yeah. Um, same with the flat set. Squirt it on that one side of a rock or on a on a side of a log or or I always use like the old firewood post that just a burnt piece of piece of log, uh, you know, about three inches, two to three inches in diameter. Uh, I'd burn it just to give it a black appearance so that when it snowed, that black stick really stood out mm-hmm. and give it the shot, of, you know, give that a shot of urine so that their eyes and their nose are focused on the same thing together so that we can stand a chance of putting a two inch paw on a two inch pan in the whole wild universe that this animal is in. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, especially you know, when you're talking about flat sets or, or urine post sets. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, yeah. the objective there is for them to mark uh, or, or to see where another animal has marked. And so you really don't want to be spreading urine all around in one of those sets. Right. And, and that's, I, I think that's the, that's the that's the key is, is is keep the smells pinpointed and and everybody has different theories and like you talked to JP about he he used very very little lure I generally lean towards using more lure um, especially when like trapping in Mississippi for example where you got tremendous amounts of rain um, 
I probably did over-lure more there because it's drizzling all the time. You need more volume there to soak into the ground or to stay on a post set or a rock. Um, so that's it's all that stuff to me is is irrelevant. What and again, we're in the lure business. I want to sell my own lures, but there's plenty <laughs> of lure makers out there. And I would say that that there's again, I always go back to that. You could take a really good trapper and give them any lure, and they'll catch coyotes or fox. The key being. There's certain things that I think have to be be looked at, and, and keeping that animal focused on that one certain thing, um, so that you can pinpoint where their foot's going to be. And that's where you know there's so much with with pan covers, um, the expanded pans, and basically there's a focus on pattern misses. And I think sometimes not anything against. Uh, let me back up. It's important to reduce pattern misses. But for me, I think sometimes reducing them pattern misses is not really a matter of having a bigger pan or a bigger trap as much as it is getting your smell in your set so you can kind of pinpoint how the animal is going to work the set, which is very hard to do. And I could be dead wrong on that theory because there's no way of proving it. <laughs> but that's something that I've always kind of stuck with. Um, so, you know, as far as how you use the, the urine or really any lure bait, I think it's, 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 you know, smearing it all over everything. I, I don't like that. I like, you know, whether you're going to use urine at a dirt hole or flat set, you know, we could debate that again for, for hours on end and, and have different theories about it. But I think having it, your smell pinpointed and having your eye appeal so that coyote is focused on a certain thing, it gives you a better chance of, of, of having that coyote only do one thing when it comes into the set instead of stomping all around, working it from different things. And again, wind direction is a variable too, but um, I think having that, that urine smell pinpointed at one specific spot on the set and then having your trap bedded solid gives you a better chance of, of being able to pinpoint where that coyote's going to actually step. Yeah, I think the like the last five minutes of this conversation is a good example of uh, always. it's always good to take a step back. If you're having issues or you're not sure, you know, you want to be more effective, take a step back and look at all of the aspects of what you're doing. Um, and maybe there's something yeah. that you hadn't considered. You think, well, how come I'm not catching an animal i've got urine all over all over the set and i've got the bait the right bait and lure and i've got my big expanded pan and everything well maybe uh you just weren't focusing that animal in one in one area um, or yeah a variety of of different things that, that you hadn't considered yeah well in in the one the one thing i'll say too this is kind of off the subject but but going back to like the pattern miss thing and and i know you've been talking on the podcast about the the no BS extreme trap and your pan, pan tension issues yeah. with that trap. I would say that better than 90% of the problems trappers have come back to pan tension. Yeah. And, and the reason I say that is if the pan tension is too high, the coyote is working the set, throwing dirt, the trap probably gets pulled out of the bed, flipped over and then sprung before the trap goes off. And, and, I I learned a lot when I can remember adjusting traps going to New Mexico. And at that time, Hal Sullivan had come out with his pan tester. So I, of course, had one. I thought that was the greatest thing ever. Yeah. And I started testing traps. And in my mind, I, was, I like two pounds of pan tension because, you know, then I can catch a coyote. You know, it's, it's, it's heavy enough for coyotes, light enough for fox and coon, and... I want to catch whatever comes to my set, basically. Yeah. So I would say I started going through, and I had a lot of, like, MB650s, a lot of four-coiled number three bridges, and I started testing traps, and a lot of them were five to six pounds. <laughs> and it's like, as soon as I, I as soon as I tested and stuck to that two-pound range, my pattern misses, my dug-up traps went way, way significantly down. Really? Um now, there's instances where um, I, the, the person that comes to mind right away is like a guy like Craig O'Gorman that's doing strictly coyote control work. 
uses a much heavier, heavier pan tension um, because you don't want to be catching jackrabbits and and everything else under the sun. You're just targeting coyotes, which is a different, that's a whole different conversation essentially. Yeah. But just strictly fur trapping, I think that pan tension um, and that's something that, um, you know, I, I've talked to trappers where I'm going to get the, get get the expanded pans i'm gonna switch to wire screen pan covers because i get too many pattern misses those things will help for sure you know it's a great a great idea for sure but if your pan tension is way too high and then you've put if if your pan tension is too high how big your pan is or what kind of pan cover you use doesn't matter because this trap is still not going to spring so yeah, I think that's something note, I would tell. I mean, uh, the solidly bedded trap. I mean, you're, I think you're assuming yeah. that these traps are bedded solidly, but that is a huge mm-hmm. factor. Oh yeah, yep. And so that's it's it's kind of interesting that as time goes by and, and like I always learned a lot on when I was actually trapping. Um, for, for me personally, like watching a video or reading a book, which I did a lot more reading than watching dvds because in the late 90s um you could watch all the dvds in the trapping industry in a long weekend (laughs) so there wasn't that many (laughs) there was no youtube um so i did a lot more reading because there was more books and then of course i did watch videos um as more became available but um actually trapping i learned so much more but then i think as time went on and, and business grew and and like my time in minnesota where I was interacting with a lot of trappers. And then after I left Minnesota from, from like 2005 till now, when business got to be bigger and, you know, you start interacting with customers more and you listen to the problems trappers have, that's where I really learned a lot and started to come up with a lot of theories because when you look at it, um, trapping is not that hard. So when you, when you start to have, hear the same problems and you know you hear them from a guy in texas a guy in minnesota a guy in maine a guy in alabama uh, a guy in indiana all so so you're covering all these different areas and somebody can and they're talking about having the same problem so to me it's not the animals it's got nothing to do with the animals it's got something to do with the equipment and actually to me the first thing i go to is the trap because like i said before you know the, using the wrong lure is not going to make a coyote come into your set, dig up your trap, spring it, and then take a dump and leave. Yeah, that's got nothing to do with the lure. Yeah, something happened before then, and naturally, the one thing that could happen is is like you mentioned, the traps not bedded solid, or we got a pan tension issue, and then. So I guess we're probably getting way off track of the urine thing, but that's what happens when we talk. <laughs> that's okay. I think we covered urine pretty good, though. I mean, unless there's anything else that you can think of that that we haven't talked about. Yeah, well, yeah, we we'll, we'll just call it good at that, or we'll end up having a whole yeah. whole podcast just about <laughs> paying attention. Getting back to your uh, your thing about having all the trappers call in, you know, and you hear all these problems. It, it just got me thinking that interview I did with Eric Martin the other day. He, he said uh, one of the common themes that he's seen with all of the, the most successful trappers in the country is complete and utter confidence in their ability. And so yeah. uh, a lot of times I think guys, guys just immediately think, oh, you know, they have something goes wrong and they think, oh, I can't do this. I'm not good at this. I get a... I get to call up some people, try to figure out what's going on and stuff. And, and uh, the professionals are, are kind of like, uh, yeah, you know, I'll try this, try that. But, okay, let's go make more sets, you know. Mm-hmm. That, that's a great, a, you know, that's a great point. And I can remember um, one time at a convention having a long talk with Slim Peterson. Or maybe it was when we did the Trappers World Clinics. I can't remember where we were. But Slim had some great theories about, he said, I believe a coyote can smell confidence <laughs> and, and, and it's kind of the same, the same theory. And that's what he always said. If you're confident in your ability, you'll have way more success than if you question everything you do. Yeah. And, and, and that's true. Of, and it's not just in trapping. I mean, 
if you want to look at confident people, uh, Michael Jordan, uh, Tom Brady, uh, right on down the line, any successful athlete, they're super confident in their ability. Doesn't mean they might not have doubts or chip on their shoulder about something, yeah. but ultimately they're confident that they're doing things to the best of their ability and they're working really hard at it. And that's a hundred percent to me, the number one thing in being successful in the trap line is, is being confident and working really hard at it. Um, because ultimately all this other stuff is Chevy's versus Ford's and stuff that doesn't really matter at all. Yeah. Um, but if you work real hard and you're confident in your system, and then the other big thing is you just have to have the animals there to apply this system and and hard work to, and yeah, you're going to catch a ton. And that is 100%. Every trapper I know of that's produced big numbers or has been successful, what, uh, whether in the trapping business or actually on the trap line, that's 100% the, the one common theme. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Uh, I picked up some MB550s from you guys the other day. Uh, probably the most popular coyote trap in the country. And mm -hmm. I was going on, as I am apt to do, to the Cots Bros website and type in MB550. And I saw the new uh, Duke 550 Pro Series traps on there. And I thought, what the heck are they doing? And, and the new Duke is, is a been a topic of pretty heavy controversy uh, on both sides recently and I thought why were Cotsbros selling this trap and then I saw I saw this note uh, on your product listing uh, that says uh, we are not stocking the Duke 550s as we feel making an exact copy of a trap and also copying the name is unethical business we want to stand by Minnesota Trapline projects products and the original MB 550 Yeah, this has been been talked about a lot, and um, we as dealers and people in the trapping industry, uh, supply business um, kind of found out about this probably last, oh, about the first of the year, um, and to, to kind of tell you where Kellen and I were at with it, um, I did buy three dozen initially, and I, I kind of wanted to see him. Yeah. Um, I wanted to look at the trap. And when we got him, Kellen's like, don't carry that garbage. <laughs> it was kind of like his exact words. Like, we're not going to, don't, don't do that. And, and we do a lot of business with, with Cavens. Um, uh, known Tim Caven. Uh, I can't even remember when I actually met Tim, but, but known him for about 20 years. Um, do a lot of business back and forth. Um, get along real good. Tim's done a lot of favors for me um, through the course of time. And so I have a little bit of a loyalty to them to start with. Nothing against Bill Duke or, or T.A. Duke. Um, I've always enjoyed talking to Bill. I got along good with him. Um, it's nothing that what you just read on the website is nothing personal against yeah. Duke. Here's the problem that I have. Um, we, well, let me back up first before I get to the problem. Coral spring traps have been around a long time, and there's been a lot of new traps come out with slightly different designs and different tweaks. And, and so the MB550, it resembles a lot of other traps. Yeah, because it's kind of like those old Sterling it's essentially, traps, right? Yeah, it, it's essentially Rob's attempt at building a better mouse trap, and it was a huge success. It's a good trap, um, but ultimately... The most proprietary part of that trap is the name, calling it the MB550. That is the name of that trap. Um, so I have no problem with Duke making a trap that's similar or really close to that. But then calling it the 550 doesn't sit well with me. Um, we're a small industry, so I feel like, like there was some toe stepping on there um, from the standpoint that it was it's identical when you hold the Duke 550 versus the MB 550 it's exactly the same the same the um, same except the quality of steel is a little different I imagine probably 
probably. The swivels are different. The chain is probably a little different. But, but for the most part, it is really, really a, a straight-on copy. And so from that standpoint, um, that was that was the problem I had with it. And I, I had a lot of email exchanges with, with, with Cavens about it. And it's like, you know, we're going to just sit this one out. There's also been some rumors that Duke was going to – to their pro series that they would maybe come out with the TS-85. I was going to ask you that. <laughs> so from that standpoint, and, and I'll be the first to admit, if, if Duke want to come out with the TS-85, they sure can. Um, I'm not going to carry it, and I would hope other dealers aren't either. But in essence, they can come out with one if they yeah, want. Yeah, none of this stuff is patented. Um, I mean... Yeah, exactly. And if you look at, like, the TS-85... Um, it has been copied in the pan system in a number of other traps. It's very similar. But ultimately, um, the first time that I saw that type of pan system on the TS-85 was a guy in Michigan named John Coretti. Um, John is a super smart manufacturer. He never produced anything on a, on a big, huge, large scale. But his ideas, he's brilliant. And he basically came up with a, a pan system that uh, was very similar to what Swatsky's ended up using on the TS-85. So again, it's it's kind of building a better mousetrap in a sense, but I feel like Duke could have... Duke, I have no problem with Duke coming out with new, new traps or anybody coming out with new traps, but I feel like there should be some effort to make it somewhat better or make it somewhat different and then change the name a little bit so that it's distinguished. That's where I had the biggest problem is, is with the, the naming. Um, so that was kind of one of them things. I, I try to leave emotion out of business, but I, I felt in this one, I, I, I felt like I, I owed it to kind of make a stand with, yeah. With yeah. It's a real one difficult one. Like you said, it, it's a small industry and, and we're all, you know, I'm sure you're still going to stock other models of Duke traps. And I use Duke yeah, traps. Yeah, we're, 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 yeah, exactly. And, I mean, we sell a lot of Duke traps. I I use a lot of Duke traps still um, and always have, always will. So, you know, it's not a personal attack on, on anything. It's just something that I, I it didn't set well with me. And I feel like kind of need to make a stand in this industry that, you know, we are a very, very small industry and we always need to make the best effort to get along with each other. And and the one thing too to keep in mind is like like the Duke copying that trap. Minnesota Trapline Products is a huge trapping supply company, and they have sold a tremendous amount of Duke traps. So I kind of feel like in that instance too, you know, there should be some some respect there that you know. We've got a dealer that moves has moved millions of dollars of our product over the course of time. You know, why would we come out with a product that's a direct, right down to the name, a direct uh, competition? To yeah, and those, those there's guys that are working there in the USA building those 550s. That you know, mm -hmm. if, if that market is is kind of taken away from them uh there there's some people that might be looking for work you're gonna have to find some other things to do yeah well right yeah they're definitely um that's and that's like i say that's that's it's probably not always the best thing to to make emotional type decisions in business but i also feel like you know sometimes you have to make a stand and you have to stick by people that have really supported you and i mean for us uh we you know, Minnesota Trapline sells a ton of our products too. Yeah. Um, Duke does not, um, so maybe I am biased. But I also, <laughs> <laughs> I, I also feel that that you know, change the name, make a couple minor changes. You could. There are things that can be done to any trap. Yeah. To make it different, and the perfect example to me of that is like Kendall Obermeyer's no be. Uh, extreme i can't ever get the words right the no bs ex ex extreme predator traps he has changed that trap to make it his own oh yeah absolutely it, you know what i mean it's it's it resembles other things 
but he's made a trap that is his own. Yeah. And it's totally, to me, it's totally pri- proprietary to his brand. Right. And that is 100% respectable. Yeah. And, and um, you know, a guy's not going to get a patent on that in an industry this small. Mo- most likely, it's not worth the cost of the patent. But what, no, what really no, gets exactly. me is, is thinking about it from a totally non emotional standpoint. Uh, we want, we need to encourage innovation in the industry. Mm-hmm. And yes. if you take away the incentive to build something new, because, oh, if I build a canine extreme, Duke's going to copy it next year. Uh, th- that, that takes away the incentive there. And so it kind of hurts all of us in mm-hmm. the long run. You're right. Right. And, and that's just it. I mean, I, you know, there's, there's like Kendall, he doesn't, he doesn't, sell those traps to dealers and i totally get that he wants to maintain kind of maintain his profits and 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 i'm just speaking i don't know kendall very well but i know enough about business and can see what he's doing yeah you know he's a smart he's he's a smart guy um so a guy like that you know if his trap is copied and then sold for 40 percent of what he's trying to sell it for I don't think that's fair. I, I don't think there's any reason to, to for an established company like Duke to make that decision. Um, it just that's uh, it is business at a certain certain point. But I I do I do question it. I guess um, it, it just seems it's it seems like like it's it seems like something that doesn't have to be done. Yeah. Right. Right. There's there's that line, you know, what's legal, what's ethical, what's ethical to you, what's ethical to me, and we all kind of have to make that decision on our own and and see where things yep. play out. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's that's a good way of putting it. And I, I mean, I think this this five fifty conversation um, is has been a uh, a big hot topic, and ultimately, I. I kind of funny i think our mb 550 sales at this point of the year are far ahead of last year's <laughs> so, so maybe some travelers like that we made that stand i guess yeah, yeah that's funny okay so uh finally you want to talk a little bit about the fur market sure so uh, i it's been you know i know it's been kind of a slow time but i'm i'm sure some people are interested to hear if there's been any developments uh, since we last talked so what do you know mm-hmm well, I don't. I don't really know a whole heck of a lot more. Um, there's there's been a lot of a lot of rumors and and you know information flying around. Um, I think I think over the next few months, you know, think, the way one one very prominent large large fur buyer told me, he said, expect the fur market to look a lot different in the future. Um, and normally, when he tells me things. I can't think of an instance where he's been wrong. So I do think that, that there's changes ahead. Um, as far as the, you know, the, the overall fur market, um, the one thing that is, is definitely a, a challenge that, you know, we had talked about last time is, is the huge decline in ranch mink. Mm-hmm. Um, being very short sighted, it probably helps some wild fur items like, muskrats and and um eventually i shouldn't say it helps but if if at some point the when the demand comes back strong and the supply is so low at that point it will help wild fur currently it's not helping wild fur because the ranch mink are so bargain priced that it's hard to push the muskrat market or like the last nafa sale wild mink um i was talking to to uh, got some went back and forth in emails and uh, had a guy tell me that he had a a winter prime heavy nice minnesota male mink at the nafa sale it sold for two dollars oh so you know you you look at certain things and and the wild mink of course are are just hugely hugely underwhelming um so that's hopefully that would change at some point. Um, but the thing that I had mentioned before that's alarming to me is, is a lot of our advocacy is, is funded, um, like the International Fur Federation, so many of the, like, 
world uh, on a world scale global scale um the advocacy and the promoting and also the defending of of fur comes from branch mink uh from a percentage of the sales that go to these organizations um so when you have this huge huge decline you know the iff fur commission usa a lot of groups that that ultimately do a lot for wild fur too just as a result of of them fighting for for consumptive use fighting la fur bans, stuff like that those organizations i could only imagine are going to face some funding issues when you know you go from selling 30 million ranch mink to 1.5 million ranch mink and at one third of the cost yeah so you know the the revenue stream there is definitely alarming um, and that that certainly is is something to watch and, and see what transpires. Um, so is that a, is that a check, like a, similar to like the beef checkoff where a percentage of sales goes to to industry um, e- groups? Yes. Okay. I I, I forget. I, um, I'm on the spot and I can't remember what it is. There's a small. It may be. It may not be a percentage, if I remember it. It may be like ten cents per ranch mink sold that NAFA goes to to, to for commission, and that's how different groups are funded. Okay. Um, and it's I, not I related don't to how me, many mink ranchers there are who contribute like memberships. It's related to sales more. Right. It's yeah. It's not like you pay a membership fee. It comes from a percentage of the sales. Yeah. Um, so naturally, when sales decrease then revenues decrease also so so that is something that um could definitely pose a problem kind of a side effect of of lower prices you know overall looking at this last napa sale and then like copenhagen sale it does seem like there's some positive things going on um but we'll see what i guess we'll see what happens when we get to fall it's kind of a i'm definitely not in the loop and not a good person to probably make predictions because I'm not a fur buyer. I'm just going off of talking to my friends that are. <laughs> and and so I can kind of sense that, um, um, that I guess the, the fur buyers I know that I deal with, I would say most of them are feeling kind of positive, which is We must be getting through that wall of ranch mink uh, to some extent. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's some things that are... Um, you know, a trade war with China helps nobody. Right. Um, so there's there's things like that that need to get sorted out and hopefully change to really open it up. Um, that's a whole other debate that I suppose we don't really need to talk about or want to talk about. But, <laughs> but it has those things have an effect. Um, so the I think that the political climate sometimes you know plays into foreign buyers' willingness to participate. Um, so that's, that's another factor that I know is not, I mean, I, I, I just, I can't grasp, understand, um, why, why we need to have tariffs when ultimately my opinion is, is it's best for the firm market, um, for a lot of markets when we have free trade, um, that's, that's what we kind of need and what in the years where the fur markets really boomed it's been kind of a free trade type deal where there wasn't huge tariffs and it was easy we need to make it easy for foreign buyers to come here and buy fur um because if you start having big big tariffs on things you know it it can really affect their mood and ultimately in the auction room that mood is a big part of it Mm -hmm. and you know we've seen we talked about like fur harvesters that little uh that had the real strong beaver sale it just came out of the blue and sometimes that that stuff happens because you know you get buyers that are in a good mood maybe have some orders for garments and you know they're all at once they're willing to pay a premium but it can work in the opposite direction too and that's just the part that makes me a little nervous is is if you put some a negative taste in in some of the chinese manufacturers or buyers that that could really have a severe effect on attendance in some of the auction rooms so you know all at once you know it's it, it, 
I, I just I hope things stay more positive for the the buyers, so that this fall we can maybe maybe see things um, start to improve a little bit more. Because here a couple of years ago, you know, it's been down, and there's a lot of uh, a positive mood, and I think a year ago it kind of tapered down a little bit um, to where eh, there was some hesitance hesitancy going into last fall and i i'm hopeful that you know that hesitancy isn't there this year and, and maybe we'll see things start to improve slightly yeah it doesn't seem that prices can get much lower although never never say never right yeah <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, it's funny you always hear there's always rumors for some reason i don't know maybe it's just me but like the last three years this time of year, you start to hear oh, some rumor about coon prices are going to be be good this year. Where do, do you, have you heard that? Where does that come from? Um, I don't know where it comes from. I, I have heard that, and um, it never I, seems to materialize much. The the one thing, it's just the, the one thing I, I think about too is like this last NAFTA sale. If you if you listen to the sale or, or watched it, there's a lot of coon unsold. But then after the sale, they did sell quite a bit more private treaty. So it's hard to really get a grasp on how many coon were sold or what was actually sold because yeah. there's so much private treaty business done after the fact. Excuse me. It does seem that um, it does seem that the coon market is maybe maybe a little bit better than a year ago. But again, I I hate to speculate on something that I'm not totally informed on. Um, but it it does it definitely seems that way. Um, in talking to a couple of different buyers that I know, they do seem to be satisfied and have the feeling that hey, we can move the coon that we do buy, yeah. which is the biggest thing. Because here a couple of years ago, um, it was all speculation. You know, I, I remember right? talking to one buyer. Yeah, exactly. Buy and that's, it, put it in a freezer and hope the price comes up. Yeah, and and that's that can be very risky, and and so I think it does seem that you know going into this year that that the buying the the coon that are produced are needed by the market right away. Um, I don't know, you know, to say it's I don't know enough about it to speculate on how if they're going to be worth more or less, but it does seem like like for the buyers that they're a liquid item um, meaning as soon as they buy them they can probably get them moved which is i think huge when we look at it from a trapper perspective um the, the money needs to keep flowing as soon as it stops somewhere that's where we start to see things drop off and we see a lot of hesitant buyers and, and also buyers saying yeah i'll buy the very best coon but these other ones are not really interested in right yep and then all those other ones are going to the next auction exactly yeah yep and so that's that's tough it that those make for the really hard years for sure. Yeah. And I mean, from, from my perspective, I, you know, I, I, I like to see it where trappers are happy. Um, I don't like to see the years like 2012 and 13 where everybody's a trapper again, because <laughs> you get a lot of people that are strictly concerned about the money aspect and it's not as fun to be in the business then. Right. <laughs> um, when things are like, when, <clears throat> When a Midwestern trapper can sell every coon they catch for $15, they're happy, and it doesn't bring a lot of trappers out of the woodwork, so there's not a huge amount of competition um, yep. in the field, and we're comfortable with the, with the you know, a, a lot of the trappers that are trapping then are passionate trappers. They're not getting into it for the money, so it's a very enjoyable time. If, you know, that's what I guess I always hope for. $15 oh, yeah. coon with 100% can, clearances, right. we're good. <laughs> if I could sell uh, Maine Beaver at $25, I'd be thrilled. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And that's, yeah, Beaver, I mean, you need a little more for Beaver because they're a lot more work. But um, that's, yeah, there's a number, I think, for every animal except for ki except for coyotes, for example. Coyotes are, are super high right now. But going back to our earlier conversation, you can't just buy a dog-proof trap and start catching coyotes like you <laughs> right. can a coon. Right. Um, so there's a skill, there's an investment, a learning curve there to produce those coyotes. So it doesn't seem to bring people out of the woodwork. 
Yeah, you got to buy your MB550s and watch the flat set fix and buy the Black Book of Coyote Trap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's more of an investment, especially, and it's not just the equipment as much as the time, and, and you have to seek out some knowledge to be successful with. Yeah. And then, you know, it's it's not like, like in 2012 or 13, a lot of Midwestern uh people could say, hey, I'm going to be a trap. I'm not going to bow hunt this year. I'm going to trap coon and just trap, uh, you know, three, four farms and buy three dozen dog proofs. And at the end of the year, they caught a hundred coon that they got 20 bucks for. Um, so they're like $350 investment turned into 2000 bucks and they had a blast Yeah. with coyote with coyotes, even at $150, they would have to invest about $2,000 in equipment and videos and gaining knowledge to go and catch like two coyotes <laughs> so it's it's a little bit different <laughs> yeah absolutely all right well kyle you probably need to get back to work i know i do um i probably should <laughs> uh, i i think we, we, it's always enjoyable talking to you we, it seems like the, it seems like we talked about five minutes and an hour has gone by so <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll catch up again, and uh, thanks again, and, and uh, we'll see you next time. All right, thanks, Jeremiah. All right, take care.